Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. It was two really good defensive teams, and they were just, yeah. we couldn't score. Come game six, we couldn't score. Yeah. I mean, we won the two games in Seattle because of our defense created enough offense to get over the hump. Uh, but, and then, I mean, I, I think we scored over 101 time and only in the nineties, like three times. And so, you know, we were in the eighties and maybe the last game might've been in the seventies. And, uh, well, and I was watching that game and I saw what a difference, you know, taking hands off of guards is and the yeah. freedom of movement and flow. I mean, that was a, that was a wrestling match more than in today's game. It's more of a, a track meet and we and that series was more of a a wrestling match and a lot of a lot of a lot of physicality a lot of toughness mental and physical toughness and and i you know michael my i actually thought we did a good job with michael most of the series guys like rodman and crew coach and pippen were the guys we lost the series That was former Seattle head coach George Carl from back in April talking about the 1996 NBA Finals when Michael Jordan and the Bulls beat his Sonics in a six-game series for Chicago's fourth NBA championship. We'll hear more from George as we share stories from the last dance. But first, oh yeah, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Exactamundo, Darlene. George Carl is both, and that's why we love him. Since April 19th, when the first two episodes of The Last Dance aired on ESPN, the story of the Chicago Bulls dynasty of the 1990s has been America's hoop obsession. Shoot, it's America's sports obsession. Our recent shows have featured excellent guests with classic stories about Jordan and the Bulls that added a lot to our understanding of what made that group so special. In George Carl's case, he and Michael were part of the University of North Carolina Brotherhood that was created by former Tar Heels coach Dean Smith who was a major influence on both men. I'm a Michael Jordan guy, you know, he's a part of the North Carolina fraternity. Yep. He's been a great, he's been, I think a great ambassador, not only for basketball, but for North Carolina. I think the first couple episodes, you know, I enjoyed it because he talks like a Carolina basketball player, you know, we, and, you know, we got to be together and we got to, we got to stay connected and, all the all the things I think his foundation came from Coach Smith, which is where my foundation mm-hmm. came. And I think it's really fun to listen to one of the, you know, in my opinion, the best player to ever play the game. And his roots being from Chapel Hill kind of turns me on and makes me feel excited. Yeah. it's I have a confession <laughs> because I guess I, 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 when I, when I really got my job in New York, 
I was, it was 90, it was after the Bulls had won their first three. So by the time they played you guys in the championship, which was uh, the finals that year, they had just become like the Beatles, you know, they'd become so big and they were almost imperious. And, you know, the it was hard to cover them if you it weren't a network partner. And it's sort of like getting close to anybody there was tough. Obviously, Steve Kerr was good and, and a couple of the other players. But, but, you know, it just was really hard to get close to anybody there. And Phil was a little aloof. And, I shoot, I, I want to say, while people wanted to see the Bulls win that title, a lot of the country was rooting for Seattle that first year. And I just, boy, I, I was, I don't know. I was, I just, the whole thing was like, Jesus, Michael, can't someone beat you? And then when I started watching this last dance, man, seeing them get the first taste of it, I really started to like Michael and what he was about. Beyond all the hype, just the, the competitiveness, the, the idea of giving yourself to the good of the group and all the things that Carolina taught him, really. Well, you know, when when I, I I've been I've been blessed to play golf with Michael. He hang, he hung, he hung, he hangs out with some North Carolina, you know, parties that we have. He comes back every once in a while. He doesn't come back all the time. But Michael is very comfortable in who he is, and he's very you know he's somewhat confident, which he should be. But you know, one thing I like about Michael, I think he handles almost any situation. You know, he can walk in and. If it's a blue collar, you know, situation, he'll handle that. If he has to wear a tuxedo, he can handle that. He has a smile on his face. He has a he has a charisma to you to him, and he had it when he was like 20 years old. I mean, mm. had to, you know, he might not have been he might have been naive when he was younger, but I think he's evolved into a really great ambassador of the game and. Um, I'm just a proud. I'm I'm proud of him being from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yeah, I it's I funny. I, it doesn't matter who I run into, Michael Corrin or uh, shoot Stuart Scott when he was alive. Everybody, it was like there. There's such a UNC brotherhood. It's very unique in the world of basketball. You never see guys running around going, "Hey, I, he's a Loyola guy," or "He's a uh, he's a Santa Clara guy," "He's a Fresno State guy." God bless my alma mater. But Carolina guy, that's a saying. Doesn't matter if it's Larry Brown, doesn't matter if it's you, Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, it's just a thing. And what what is why is there such a UNC brotherhood? Why are all the players who played for Dean so devoted to him? Uh, I think it's the and the reason is we're all loyal to Coach Smith. I mean, yeah. uh, Coach Smith, I would say a vast majority of the players that played for Coach Smith look at Coach Smith as their second father. And, uh, you know, he was more than a basketball coach. I, I speak all the time on leadership. And Coach Smith was a better coach of men than he was of basketball. Hall of Fame writer Sam Smith of Bulls.com has covered basketball for four decades, most of them at the Chicago Tribune. He was on the Bulls beat before MJ was even on the team. Sam understood better than most how MJ's early brilliance and the eventual success of the Bulls lifted up a city whose sports teams were not known for their championships. You know, in our case, you know, of course, living in Chicago, you know, it's sort of different. You know, Chicago doesn't, didn't have a great uh, history of successful sports teams, not like New York with the Yankees and, you know, Dynasty, Boston or L.A. And, you know, so it's, it's a big city. 
and you know that sort of that second city insecurity complex sort of hovered over Chicago, which I kind of could see from afar and then being up close, having come from New York. And so, you know, it was a rare thing that you can embrace. This was the rare time that Chicago had, because even in other sports, you know, they're great figures, Ernie Banks in baseball, whatever, or even, you know, Gale Sayers and Dick Butkus were like tragic figures. You got hurt or played with losing teams. And so here was this, for the first time, Chicago could really have, you know, you know, we had the number one guy. And so it, it was this incredible source uh, of civic pride. And then it, it was the most unusual and, and spectacular championship team ever. There's, there's never been anything like it. And there never will be anything like it. There hasn't been anything like it. Because you've got the greatest player in Jordan. Or, okay, you want to argue it, whatever you could take this one or that one. But then you've also got this unique coach with 11 titles, with this unusual way of going about it, even though he really, Phil was really excellent with X's and O's to the point. Red Holtzman hadn't sat on the bench as his uh, unofficial assistant yeah. in 69 when Phil missed that season with back surgery. Um, so Phil knows his, but, but also with the Zen and the Native American symbolism and all that stuff. So you have that. And so over the time when you showed up, you know, now Rodman is a part of it. So you've got this most bizarre feature yeah. who is act, who's acting out and, and this incredible undefeated team that's never losing. You know, you know the, once he got there, he won every time. Nobody did, nobody did that, basically. You know, even Russell, with all those great championships, the one year Sixers finally got past him, got to win like every game of the season. You know, to do it, you have this incredible team in 67. And, you know, mm. LeBron's lost, the Warriors lost, Spurs could never repeat, Lakers couldn't get three, Celtics couldn't get three. You know, nobody has done, and this guy gets three twice in a row. In Jordan's early years with the Bulls, he was known for being very open with the media. But as his fame grew, so did the demands. Another Hall of Fame writer, Mark Stein, formerly of ESPN and now the New York Times, began working the NBA beat after Chicago's first three-peat. But by that time, covering MJ was much different than it was in MJ's early days. We just missed the Jordan who gave great access. And yes. Jackie McMullins and Sam Smith and Pete Vesey's and Lacey, Lacey J. Banks and all just all those guys, they all got to cover Michael when he was open with the media. I missed it. I, I And so... I really want to watch and see this kind of behind-the-scenes access because by the time I got to the league, he was totally he was it was very closed off and and yeah, a Rash- Rashad got access and that was it. Yeah, I I feel the same way. It was sort of like Jordan Incorporated by the time. Well, I, I got to the Times in '94, and I I guess I covered that double nickel game at the Garden. But I didn't really start covering the Knicks and then the NBA until 97. So so whatever Jordan I saw was essentially the Jordan that you saw. It was a very incorporated Jordan. It was a very business-like Jordan. It was, it was Michael Post, well, everybody reporting gambling on him and everybody giving him a hard time after going to play baseball. And then the Jordan that came back was almost on a mission in a different way. But, yeah, there was, there was a uh, – what do I want to call – what do I want to say? It was it was a sanitized version of George, a homogenized version, and it's kind of cool to get the bus behind the scenes of it all. He hasn't spoken like this in decades. 
Yes. And that's the, that's the, that's the appeal of documentary. And that's what we're all going to, you know, we all want to see. I mean, he, he mm-hmm. speaks with a level of candor that again, the Will Bonds, the Sam Smith, the Jackie McMullins, they've heard that, but most of us haven't been treated to, to that Michael Jordan. Yep. How about the part where he, the part where he just drops a dime on his old teammates, his first year, basically saying that, you know, there, there was supposition that they were using cocaine and a lot of, and a lot of substances, but he basically says, yeah, there was a room on the road. I went in, almost all my teammates were in there. There were lines here. They were like, I was like, what? I go, what happened to the sanctity of the locker room, Michael? But uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't see it that way because for one, he didn't name names. True. And two, and two, everybody talked about those bulls and the NBA that way. I mean, I, I, I feel like he was asked about it and gave, you know, look, he gave a more detailed answer than I, I probably would have expected, but he didn't name, he didn't name anybody. Like I, I didn't find that one egregious at all, really. Charlie Rosen is a longtime friend and confidant of former Bulls coach Phil Jackson. Charlie visited the show in late April to share some legendary stories of MJ's exploits. Guys on the team were afraid of Michael because if they made a mistake, he'd be screaming at him and yelling at him. And mm. Pippen was the guy they would go to to kind of uh, calm them down and talk some sense into him. Um, but I witnessed the best shot that anybody ever made, the best shot in the history of basketball, is done by Michael Jordan. It was, I forgot the year. I was coaching the Rockford Lightning in the CBA, which is like 70 miles from Chicago. So I had dibs on all the guys that the Bulls drafted and didn't make the team. And I think there were five or six or seven draft choices back in the day. So it's the first day of practice. And it's a closed gym. But I was in there because of my – and Phil was an assistant – my affiliation with Phil and with the Lightning. So this scrimmaging, and it's the first day, and the rookies are going crazy, diving all over the place, and and the veterans are are running wide circles around the rookies. They don't want to get involved in anything. So Michael steals the ball, (laughs) and he comes running down ahead of the court, and there's a guy named Matt Brust from St. John's, who was the fifth round draft choice of the Bulls. Oh, six, four, six, five, white guy, big shoulders, good three-point uh, shooter, had reputation as being a tough, 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 tough guy. So Michael dribbles down, goes up for the layup, Brust smashes him from behind, knocks him on the floor, and it's like, uh-oh. Jerry Krause dropped his donut. That's how uh, serious it looked. So <laughs> Jerry so, dropped his donut. That's it's, it's his like donut. Warren Buffett. That's like Warren Buffett <laughs> dropping his wallet. <laughs> yeah, right. So Michael gets up. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay. All right. So they keep on playing. Several minutes later, Michael steals the ball again. And here he comes ahead of the field, and here comes Brust. But this time he knows Brust is coming. So you got to picture this. Michael takes off, palming the ball in his right hand on the right side of the basket. He goes up. He's in the air. Here comes Brust. With his left arm, Michael 
smashes Brust in the face with his elbow. He's still up in the air. Switches the ball to his left hand. His left hand goes underneath and around the basket and dunks. Oh, the oh. best shot I have ever, ever, ever seen. Michael was such a competitor. And the reason, one of the reasons why he got along so well with Phil, number one, Phil wasn't um, intimidated by superstars. You know, he played with um, Clyde and the captain and everybody. Right. When the Knicks really put the NBA on the national uh, map as far as, uh, you know, sports was concerned when they won those championships. And the other reason is that the two of them, Phil and Michael, were the fiercest, fiercest competitors in the whole Bulls organization. After the Bulls' first three-peat in 1993, Michael decided to try his hand at baseball. At the time, there was a lot of controversy about the fact that he liked to gamble. And there was plenty of speculation that his baseball hiatus was really a cover for something else, namely a suspension by the NBA because of his gambling. When I spoke with former commissioner David Stern in his final interview in late October of 2019, he denied it. And Sam Smith backed the late commissioner up when he was my guest. When the gambling stuff really originally started, it was with this Slim Buller character when Jordan didn't go to the White yes. House. In 1991, he went on this gambling weekend. I mean, imagine the scandal level in this era that it might have been. He skips the trip to the White House. The rest of the team goes. He says he's going on a family vacation. He goes to a gambling weekend with Slim Buller. You know, it's sort of like, you know, playing pool with a guy named Lefty or something. Don't do that. Right. So unbeknownst to him, you know, Slim is a convicted drug dealer. There was a bail bondsman who financed the weekend who got murdered. And they found Michael's check in his, his belongings. That's how it came out. You know, and then the other things developed with the you know, buddy Richard Aquinas and going to Atlantic City between games, which was laughable. I don't know if he was the New York Times then, but there was the most amazingly uh, immature, stupid thing the New York Times ever did in Michael Jordan between games, condemning him for being getting in at 2 a.m. I remember someone, one of the New York writers asking me about that, and I said, I'm shocked too, because he usually gets in at five, <laughs> and then he gets 50 points. Right. But, but Harvey I, wrote the column. Yeah, I know, it was just, it was, you know, it was uh, Dave Anderson. Oh, Dave you're right. Anderson Dave Anderson found out. Nice, That's right. The nicest man in the world. The just yes. the wonderful, nicest man. In God Jordan rest Anderson. his soul. You know, sort of the opposite of every other New York writer in the city. <laughs> just a wonderful <laughs> guy. And, you know, he was outraged about this. And anyway. Which was, you know, because Michael, that's the way he lived his life. You know, he played cards yeah. at five in the morning. He played golf at seven, and then he got, you know, 52 points. And he did it, you know, you know playoff after playoff after playoff. And this legendary show. But I'll just tell you quickly. So the Tribune, you know, this scandal comes out, which is going to so all the gambling stuff. So we put together an investigative team and go down and, and to interview all these guys. Skynet, when the gambling stuff breaks with the league, you know, he's going to do investigation. And we go, we go to every single one of these guys involved, of course, other than a dead guy. And so we, our investigative guy, I wasn't part of that, but I'm covering the team still. And so, but he's a friend of mine, so I asked him, and he, I got his notes afterwards, and we talked about it. 
So every time they went down and, and they would say, well, they'd do the interviews about what happened. And they say, well, what did the NBA investigate ask you? Well, we didn't talk to anyone from the NBA. They did not talk, their investigation did not talk to a single person involved wow. in that whole episode. They did not want, and they, if there was anything wrong, and there really was nothing major, I don't believe. But if there was, the NBA did not want to hear it. They were not going to deal with getting their Michael Jordan, their biggest producer, out of the yeah. league. David Stern, the ultimate capitalist of sports, was right. not putting pressure on Michael Jordan. And what Michael was upset about, because he went to see Stern about this, and it was David was put on a defensive. You know, yes. he went to he went back to the league office when they called him up that one time. So he comes up, and he, and he only did it. I remember this vividly. He wasn't going to go see out of his way to see it. He tells the league, I'll come see it when the team's in New York. I ain't coming otherwise. So we're in New York, and he goes up to see David. And he says that this whole thing is bull, you know, and after all I've done, after all the, every interview you have me on, all these, all these, you know, shows, inside stuff, whatever they're called, I do all this junk for you guys. And this is what, this is the way you deal with me? So he was like furious with the league. Now, it wasn't quitting because of that, but he was basically right. saying, you guys lay off because like your point, but Michael's point is, I'm going to do what I want. Right. <laughs> Michael Jordan, I, I'm worried about the league. And David is like, well, yeah, no, no, we apologize. <laughs> you know, right. David's like regretting this. He says, oh, no. And, and like I said, when the Tribune, when we went looking and had a, a you know, an investigative team that won Pulitzer doing this story, we couldn't find a single NBA investigator who talked to anybody involved with this story. That's that's tremendous. The late Jerry Krause was the general manager of the Bulls during their championship years. In the documentary, he was cast as the villain and frequently ridiculed by Jordan and Scottie Pippen. One of the troubling aspects of The Last Dance was that nobody defended Krause, and he was not alive to defend himself, having died in 2017. Sam Smith and I examined that issue. Did Jerry Krause get a fair shake in this documentary? I, I like Jerry. I know he was socially, um, he, he probably had some social uh, inept. What you, social inept anxiety inept. disorder. That was the word you're looking for. Yeah, you're right. You know, fair is, a, fair is you know, a, a personal view, uh, yeah. judgmental. Uh, I, I feel he was depicted accurately. Jerry was very difficult to live with. Uh, in this yeah. modern NBA, he would be the executive vice president of basketball operations, and you wouldn't see him. He'd be making decisions behind the scenes, scouting. You know, essentially, Jerry was a rumpled scout. He was, but in that, in that NBA of the mid-'80s, there wasn't the economics to have a big front office, and so the scout had also become the so-called face of the franchise. And, uh, you know, whatever the psychological issues would be about some popular kid growing up, wanting to be one of the guys, whatever, without getting into that. Jerry was, Jerry was difficult to live with, difficult to be around. But at the same time, if, if your antagonist or the protagonist of the story, but the antagonist for Jerry is Michael Jordan, and you've got no sense of humor, you can deal with Michael. And Michael was great fun to right. be with. But you had to be on your guard, and you needed to be sharp because he was coming yeah. at you verbally as much. And Jerry could not deal with that. You know, he couldn't respond because he was kind of humorless. But at the same time, he's the boss, so he yeah. would revert to, "Well, you know, I'm in charge." You know, you don't, you know, you don't win with Michael Jordan pulling that one. And so <laughs> difficult. But but on the other hand, 
it was fair because Jerry was executive of the year twice, voted by his peers, which is not, uh, you know, which was among elite. Not many yeah. executives have gotten that. He was the, ex the chief executive of the franchise that won six championships. So there was no reason to fire him. Yeah, your employees don't like you. You know, I, I didn't like most of the sports editors I worked for. It didn't, <laughs> you know, didn't mean they should be fired. That's whatever. They did their job. I did my job. And it's not supposed to affect you. And so yeah. the team succeeded. The team succeeded. So, you know, I, 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 Jerry's, you know, the issue with the public probably was displayed both with the players in that one scene when I come back from Detroit and he's dancing the aisle with the players. Get out of there. That's not, <laughs> that's not where you're supposed to be. And so, right. you know, who, 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 you know, has a celebration at work and invites and, and the boss. <laughs> it's, just not, it's just not the way it works. And so uh, if Jerry had stayed in the background, like the owner, like, you know, whoever else, like basically the GM of every other team, he wouldn't have been probably depicted the way he yeah. was. But you know what? It's like a great novel, and every great novel, you know, needs needs a needs a villain. You know, I just wish you know, were I I just wish you were alive to say, you know, like or his wife could get up there and say something. I mean, because I think this, I think Jordan loved to dish it out. I don't know if he could take it. I could see if if he joked with Jerry Krause about his weight and his height. I'd love to see I'd love to see how Jordan looked up when Jerry said, you know, hey. Uh, Hey, how's Rich Esquinas doing these days, Michael? How's he doing? You talked to him lately? Yeah, but see, Mike, that, that was the point. Jerry was, couldn't do that. He had no sense of humor, and he, he wasn't glib, and he wasn't quick. So if, if Jerry yeah. were alive today, he couldn't defend himself. And if he would, he'd have made it worse, I guarantee yeah, you. Not that, it's good, not that it's good he's passed away, you know. Yeah. My guess would be if he were alive today, he would probably say nothing. People would advise him to keep quiet about yeah. it, so you're going to make it worse. And if Jerry had been able to respond in a snarky way like you just did, then it wouldn't have been the way it was. Michael would have, like, you know, with Steve Carr with a fight or whatever. Once you go back at Michael, then he gains some respect for you. Jerry never knew or understood how to do that. One of the sources of tension between Krause, Jordan, and Pippen was Krause's extended courtship and eventual signing of European star Tony Kukoc, who joined the Bulls for the 1993-94 season. Kukoc was a star in Europe before joining the Bulls at the age of 25 and played for Croatia in the 1992 Olympics. And the way Jordan and Pippen went after him in Barcelona was brutal. Here's Charlie Rosen. Krause was a big fan of uh, Kukoc. Yep. And he'd go in disguise in, in Europe and watch him play and said publicly that uh, he's better than Michael Jordan and they can win with Kukoc. Um, and uh, I think Michael was really upset with that. And if you remember the first time Pippen and Jordan played Croatia in the uh, Olympics, they buried Kukoc. They really went oh, out of Oh, no, they, they made it a personal, made it a personal. personal uh, thing. Yeah. They absolutely buried him. Here's a Kukoc story. So they're playing Miami in the playoffs. Um, and, you know, Phil would show his uh, his scouting movies and he'd fill them with all kinds of crazy things to make them laugh. He, uh, and he once had a picture of, uh, oh, I always forget his name. He used to be the general manager of Utah, big heavy guy, Frank. Uh, Frank uh, Layden. 
Frank Lazy. So he, you know, they're doing this. You know, well, this is their offense, and, and all of a sudden, there's a ten-second clip of Frank Layton wearing a bikini bathing suit running down a beach. <laughs> Imagine what that looked like. So players probably <laughs> fell out. Fell out. Yeah. That's one of the things about Phil. He do things. Yeah that the players could never anticipate. So they always had to concentrate. You know, other guys, other coaches, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They heard it before. They kind of tune out. But Phil would always come up with something a little different. So he's showing the game. um, And uh, Chris Gatlin, remember Chris Gatlin? Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. A rangy guy for the Warriors. He played for a couple other teams. And he played for Miami at this time. Uh, Right. Sprains his ankle. And the Bulls have the ball. And there's no timeout or something like that. And it's, oh, wow, okay. So um, they spread the court, and Gatlin is guarding Kukoc. So they run like a 1-4. So they're one-on-one. And Gatlin is literally hopping on one leg. So what does Kukoc do? He takes a three-point shot. So when it came uh, time to show the film, uh, you know, the next day, he replays that one play five, six, seven, eight times. Gatlin hopping. Kukoc shoot the three-point, and Phil turns to Kukoc and says, that's why Croatia never won a war. <laughs> Speaking of Phil, he had many coaching wars with George Carl during their years in the NBA. As we heard at the top of the show, the 1996 finals were a matchup between George and Phil's teams with Phil coming out on top. George's son, Kobe, actually played for Phil on the 2008 Lakers and now is an up-and-coming coach in his own right. And Phil has been generous with his advice. Kobe Kobe has turned into a, a pretty decent coach. He's coaching the Lakers G League team, isn't he? Kobe's better than decent. I think he's going to be really good. I think he, you know, he and I we talk quite frequently about coaching and yeah. And, and, and Kobe's other mentor in his life is Phil Jackson. And last summer, Phil Jackson and I and Kobe went out to his house in Montana and spent three or four days together. And it was really fun. I mean, Kobe had to talk me into doing it. And, you know, Phil has probably kicked my ass more than any coach in basketball. <laughs> and, and I'm going, okay, what? And then I walk into his house and he has all these trophies and he has all these windows of teams that he beat. He put me in the, the bedroom where it was the Seattle supersonic window. <laughs> uh, just, so, I mean, there, it's so it was a really... I mean, there was a lot of subconscious, subliminal commentary going on quite frequently in our in our talks. But I got to know Phil pretty well, and I, I and what's funny, you know, in a, in a strange way, Phil and I are probably a lot alike. But he does it with a Zen mentality, and I do it like a general mentality. So, you know, I'm more in the uh, uh, controlled chaos, and I think Phil's more in the calm and mellow. Did you go fishing with them? What'd you do? Did you did you, did you share some ganja? What would you do? You know, we took a. I mean, he lives in a beautiful area, so we ran. We drove around whitefish and 
Kalispell, and yeah, I, I I spent three. He grew up in Great Falls, Montana, and I spent three years in Great Falls, Montana. Oh. And you know, and then we'd wake up in the morning and talk some basketball, and go to lunch, and we'd come back and talk basketball, or take a tour of the city, or just go out and enjoy nature. Take a, you know, we took a bike ride I think one time, and uh, I mean the, the second, and then at nighttime, Phil loves to watch movies. I mean, he loves to watch movies, so we some, I think one or two nights we watched a movie. It was just a, a kind of a fun thing, and. I think Kobe, you know, Kobe is very much into trying to evolve and learn, and and Phil and I are quite different offensively, and and actually quite different probably defensively. But I think it's good to, I think again, sitting in meetings where the most information and why you did things, I think, help young helps young coaches evolve and develop their own personalities. Mm. That's that's great that he's getting the sort of he's a mixture of the Zen and the general. Do, when he gets an NBA head coaching job, he's obviously promised you a job on his staff already, hasn't he? Uh, we've talked about it. I mean, I, I go out there. <laughs> Love it. You know, I you know I, I think he's gonna probably have to learn how to tell me to shut the fuck up. But I think I think he's getting strong enough to do that now. <laughs> In the 1998 finals between the Bulls and Jazz, Chicago was in trouble in game six. While they led the series three games to two, they trailed by three with 41.9 seconds left. That's when Jordan took matters into his own hands in a burst of greatness that was a microcosm of his entire career. Here's how Sam Smith saw it. And that's one of the great sequences to me in the history of the game, that last minute of game six, where he makes... He makes basically everything Michael Jordan was over 13 years was displayed in one minute of basketball. Well, if you, and if nobody, and you just said that, Sam, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just got through reading your take on that. The the, the last minute is one of the best things you ever wrote about the Bulls because that you're right. That minute was a metaphor for the greatness of him and that franchise in ways you can't even, I mean, even the, the play to the, the play to go straight to the basket and get a quick two, people people don't even think about that now. But I remember me and I solo looking at each other, going, "That was the worst thing that could have happened for the Jazz. They didn't even have to work for that shot." Right, gave them too much time. And yeah, then, you know, offense, defense, intelligence, not calling a timeout, realizing where the and Carl's not going to see the double coming, coming off from the baseline instead of over the top. I mean, there were so many elements of just that one, and basically did it himself. Nobody else touched the ball. Jordan's bucket cut the lead to one. Then he stripped the ball from Carl Malone on the next possession and hit the famous shot over Brian Russell for the game winner and championship number six. Not for MJ's heroics, game seven would have been in Utah. And with Scottie Pippen suffering from back problems, the Bulls would have struggled and I think would have lost. But as it turned out, Jordan saved the season and went out on top. Well, before the Wizards, anyway. Many have speculated that if the Bulls had stayed together after the 1998 championship with Jackson as coach, along with MJ, Pippen, and Rodman, they'd have kept winning. Mark Stein isn't so sure. Charlie Rosen, he's 79 now, but fairly sharp still. He said the Bulls would have won at least two more championships if they kept everyone together after that run. Your thoughts? I don't 
I don't know that I would go that far because I actually heard Sam Smith talk about this. He did a pod with our mutual friend Howard Beck, and Sam mm. reminded me of something that I have completely forgotten about. Remember Jordan, during that lockout, almost cut his finger off with that cigar thing. Oh, that's so right. That, you know, he had that cigar cutter incident, and it really messed up his tendon. And so he would have been compromised to some degree health-wise that, that next season. But look, at the time of the breakup, that injury hadn't happened. Scotty was obviously ailing, but I also strongly dispute the Jerry Krause, Jerry Reinsdorf notion that that Bulls team was done. Are you kidding me? They no. still could have had a core of Jordan, Pippen, and a young Kukoc with Phil as coach. I think they would have been just fine. Would they have kept winning titles? Eventually, they were obviously going to lose to someone, but right. they, you know, with, with those three, you could have redone the whole team and still been excellent. And look, the reality is they couldn't have extended Scotty in that last season, but after, you know, in the summer of 95, there was a window to extend it, and they chose not to do it, and that, to me, is on the Bulls. Reinsdorf can say all he wants. He signed a contract. I don't renegotiate. No, when, when, you, have a, when you have a team for the ages, and you guys have won three, four championships already, and you know how miserable Scottie Pippen is, rip up that contract and give him a new one. Mm. Make him happy. Make, you know, there's not a lot of guys who can, play, who, who can claim to be Michael's perfect sidekick. Get it done. Make him happy. Fix it. The Bulls yeah. did not. And move and on from not there. All right. on, it's not all on Jerry Krause. It's on Ryan yeah. Jerry Reinsdorf is the only one from the last dance who remains. He's still the owner of the Bulls. But all the other principals from the championship years have moved on or passed away. Jordan is a fellow owner in Charlotte. Jackson went on to coach the Lakers to five championships between 2000 and 2010, and he's now retired in Montana. Pippen's doing TV work, and Krause was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame shortly after his death in 2017. The Bulls dynasty made for an incredible story, and ESPN and director Jason Hare delivered an unforgettable look back at a team and a superstar that will be remembered for as long as we follow sports. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you to all of our recent guests for sharing stories and insight from the Jordan years and what's become for us the best of the last dance. Thanks also to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, for weaving all of them together writing all these tracks and essentially getting up early while my sorry ass overslept. <laughs> Thanks also to our editor, Ben Wolfen. He continues to do really strong work for us, social media and podcast. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Each Tuesday, we've got Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams, where they've got college basketball covered. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto and Aaron has a new show every Wednesday. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with my friend Monica McNutt is here each Thursday. And Friday, it's the Pure Hoops podcast with B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman. B.J. was a member of the first three Bulls championship teams, and his MJ stories are much better than mine. Please continue to honor your fellow citizens by wearing your mask in public, washing your hands, maintaining physical distancing when you venture outside, and treat everyone right because it's true. We are all in this together. Pray for the safety of our healthcare professionals, other essential workers, and each other. 
Stay safe, everyone. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Mike Wise Show. Peace! The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.